Are you ready for the quantum age? Humanity's next step in evolution? Dream Vision 7 Radio Network invites you to the extraordinary platform of evolutionary voices for the quantum age. Let's explore. Learn more about this upcoming age where we bridge science with spirituality. Where potentiality meets reality. Where we take compassion into action. Our trailblazers and visionaries will ask the whys, the what ifs, while igniting continuous possibility. Come along with us into an age beyond what we know today, where we can grow together in unity consciousness. Experience evolutionary voices for the quantum age, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern on DreamVision7Radio.com. Welcome to What's in Your Way is the Way with your host, Mary O'Malley, inviting you to open to the radical notion that in your life, whatever you perceive to be in your way is the way. In other words, your challenges, whether they be relationships, compulsions, finances, or illness, come with gifts embedded in them that can bring healing and allow you to experience the joy of being fully alive. Mary is a counselor, awakening mentor, inspirational speaker, and the author of What's in the Way is the Way, the gift of our compulsions, belonging to life, and the magical forest of aliveness. What's in Your Way is the Way with Mary O'Malley is part of Evolutionary Voices for the Quantum Age. Heard Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Welcome. To What's In Your Way Is The Way, and I'm your host, Mary O'Malley, and today we are exploring our addiction to struggle. The struggling mind. What man most passionately wants is his living wholeness, his living unison, not his own isolated salvation. I am a part of the sun as my eye is a part of me, that I am a part of the earth, my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There is nothing of me that is alone and absolute except my mind, and we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surface of the waters. D.H. Lawrence When the morning alarm shatters the deep peace of sleep, the first thought that may grab your awareness is the universal mantra, Oh, shit. Still nestled in the womb of slumber, your arm gropes for the snooze alarm, and sweet oblivion takes over once more. After what seems like a very short time, the pesky alarm again interrupts your peace, and the mind begins to say, You should get up. No, it answers itself, just one more snooze alarm. But even though the button is pushed, the escape of sleep does not return. After a seemingly endless war between I should and I won't, you finally crawl to bed only to be met by the cold morning air. With a grumbling mind and a resistant body, you make your way to the bathroom for your morning ablutions. A moment of comfort from the hot, streaming shower cuts through your struggling mind and awareness kicks in. Oh, this is it. This is my life. I am here. I am alive. 
The wanting and resisting mind quiets down as you bring your full attention to the living experience of this moment. But the struggling mind has only begun its day. Fear then makes its presence known. Oh, this is the day of the big presentation. I'm not prepared enough, it says. Your awareness begins to wrap around a maze of struggle and the living experience of your life is left far behind. You throw your clothes on and rush to the kitchen for breakfast. Shoveling down a bowl of cereal, your focus is on your notes, hoping that a review of what you wrote last night will give you fresh inspiration. Instead, your mind begins to doubt your ability to even give the presentation, let alone do it well. When your partner asks you a question, irritation flares through your body and mind. In a huff, you collect your papers, throw on your coat, and rush out the door. On the road, the other drivers feel no more supportive of your big day than your partner does. They are either too slow or too fast, too erratic or too conservative. Your mind boils over as you find yourself lost in a whirling maze of struggle. For most of us, most of the time, we live inside a struggling mind that feels it has to work at life. On some days, its struggles are subtler than the example I just gave, but they are still there. Our mind worries about a pimple, oh, people will think I'm ugly, or a spot on our shirt, I am such a slob. The conversation that fills our minds throughout the day is busy liking and disliking our lives. It either wants what is not here or resists what is, endlessly caught in ideas about life rather than truly experiencing it. No wonder we are exhausted at the end of the day. Lost in this web of wanting and resisting, we live in afterthoughts about our lives, ideas, desires, beliefs, judgments, and fears that are laid on top of our living experience. With our awareness snared in a maze of struggle, we not only miss our lives, but we also fail to notice the support, the wisdom, and the benevolence that are always available right here, right now. This conversation that so often grabs our attention is a story about life. It has been woven out of bits and pieces of our experience and is full of ideas about what life is, who we are, and what we should be. To get a sense of how lost in our stories we are, I invite you to take a moment and look around the space where you are. This is your life. Let it in. The colors, shadows and light, objects that you may have seen a thousand times but you have never really seen. Let your life in. Now, raise your closed fist a foot or so away from your face. You can still see life, but now there's a barrier that blocks your sight a bit. 
Your fists represent the beginning of the conversation about life that you now live in most all the time. The conversation that its foundations were created when you were a child. Now, one by one, uncurl and spread your fingers. Each one represents a part of your story. Judgments about yourself and others, desires, aversions, shoulds and shouldn'ts, wants and fears. All of these pieces make up your conversation about life. At times, you can look through the fingers and connect with the living moment of life, but most of the time, you are focused on your hands and your fingers, focused on all the thoughts in your head. Now, bring your hands and your fingers closer together and towards your face. Notice that eventually all you can see are hands and they may be very blurry at best. This is where you usually live, absorbed by the stories in your mind. Very rarely are you present. You live in the fuzzy world of ideas about life, plans and expectations, wants and fears, judgments and despair. You whiz through the present moment as you careen from the past into the future and back again. And you wonder why you never feel the deep peace you long for. Now, slowly let your hands drop. And again, really notice what is around you. This is life without the filters of the stories in your head. Lost in our stories, we have all tried to create the perfect life, hoping that this would feed our deep hunger for peace. Instead, it has taken us ever deeper into the world of struggle. We also hope that if we just understand where the fingers came from, counseling, or are able to get beyond them into higher realms of consciousness, positive thinking, or the search for enlightenment, then, finally, then, everything will be peaceful again. Our attempts to change or get rid of our story may have brought us moments of peace, but we are still victims of our struggling minds. The freedom we yearn for doesn't come from fixing, changing, or rearranging our stories about life. True healing comes from discovering that we are not the stories. We are that which can see them. And take a moment and just let that in. Who you are is awareness that is spacious and open. The vast blue sky that all these stories can arise and pass right on through. So, I invite you again to bring your hands close enough to your face that you block your view of life. This time, instead of constantly trying to get around, under, or beyond these hands that are blocking your view, 
under, beyond, or around the stories that fill up your head, move your hands far enough away from your face so that you can see them clearly. See wrinkles, whirls, colors, and shapes. For a few moments, Explore your hands with your focused attention, allowing each one of your fingers to represent a part of your story. Fear, anger, self-judgment, sadness, despair, etc. As you truly see each finger, allow it to relax until all of them are folded back into a fist and your fists come down to your side. Now, you can fully see and be with life again. This kind of attention, this exploration of your stories about life is what heals the perceived rift between yourself and life. You don't need to create the healing you yearn for. You only need to see what stands in the way. For what is in the way is the way. In the ability to be with the stories in your head without falling into them, they relax just like your fingers relaxed and your hands move back to your side. Then an expansive view of life and the ability to be present for whatever comes are available to you again as you rediscover the rapture of being alive. Meeting the fear of what is here. Investigate what is. You can experience great insight by just watching struggle. Indeed, a moment of seeing struggle as just another state of mind, just an impersonal process passing through the vastness of your true being can allow you release from the painful shallowness of the mind. The mind insists it's so solid, and yet these thoughts are just bubbles, fragile impermanences passing through. Stephen Levine one of the main reasons we have been unaware of the benefits of relating to the stories in our head rather than being lost to them is that we're embarrassed by and afraid of what is there. We have been taught from very early on that a good human being has particular kinds of thoughts and behaviors and a bad human being has another kind. So we hide from and try to exercise those parts of us that we consider unacceptable. But the amazing news is we all have all of them. Right now, as you sit here reading this book, people all over the world are living the extremes of the human states of mind. There are people in terror, rage, grief, lust, greed. 
We have all experienced every one of these feelings at moments in our lives. And even though the feelings that we experience throughout our day are not usually so extreme, they affect us just the same. Little griefs build up into despair. Little fears compound into mistrust of life. Moments of irritation keeps us separate from our brothers and sisters. And greed can often compel us to overconsume. To see that our mind is capable of any state is to also see that what moves through us all day long is not much different than what moves through most people. Everyone's mind, to a greater or lesser degree, has been as petty, fearful, arrogant, revengeful, self-pitying, lustful, controlling, and self-absorbed as ours. What would our lives be like if we collectively comprehended that this is just what unconscious human minds do? Take judgment, for example. I have sat in numerous silent meditation retreats, and I'm still constantly amazed at how much the mind judges. It dislikes people for blowing their noses, walking too slowly, walking too fast, closing doors, asking too many questions, and on and on. Rather than simply seeing what the story is up to, we become so busy trying to adjust it, believing that if we just think like this, we must be defective. So we never quite wake up to the fact that who we are is something bigger than all of these thoughts. The word personality, it comes from the root word persona, which means mask. So we go about wearing our masks, trying constantly to be whatever we feel together is, thinking our mind should be always focused, in control, loving, kind, reverent, thrifty, and hope nobody will notice what the real truth is. This somebody who is endlessly having a conversation in our head is on the job practically 24 hours a day. It's constantly pruning and editing, shoving down and rearranging, ignoring or trying to exercise the parts we deem unacceptable. It causes us to live in the narrowest place human beings have ever known. The first time I met Stephen Levine was at a workshop he gave in Seattle. When he said, I would like to create a hat that, when you put it on your head, would instantaneously broadcast over a loudspeaker all of your thoughts, a collective groan of horror swept across the room. When this wave of fear had moved through, Stephen shifted our perception from one of fear to curiosity. He said, rather than being ashamed of your thoughts, you would discover that we are all thinking the same kind of thoughts if you just take a moment to look. It became evident in that workshop that the depth to which we are embarrassed and afraid of the thoughts that stream through our mind all day long 
is the depth to which we compartmentalize ourselves and thus cut ourselves off from life. The amazing thing is that to simply deny or ignore them doesn't make them go away. In fact, it gives them free reign to cause all sorts of chaos, confusion, and despair in our lives. For an unattended mind has a tendency to get itself into trouble. Stephen described it very well when he said, The internal dialogue is always commenting and judging and planning. It contains a lot of thoughts of self, a lot of self-consciousness. It blocks the light of our natural wisdom. It limits our seeing of who we are. It makes a lot of noise and attracts our attention to a fraction of the reality in which we exist. We're not only embarrassed and ashamed at what we may discover as we put on the hat, but we are also terrified of what we may find there. We sealed most of what was unmeetable in our childhood far, far away from our conscious awareness, and there it lies, deep inside of us, molding and shaping our lives more than we can possibly imagine. Our fear is that if we become present for our thoughts, our feelings, and our sensations, that they will swallow us forever. The opposite is true. Rainier Maria Rilke wrote, We have no reason to mistrust our world for it is not against us. Has it terrors? They are our terrors. Has it abysses? Those abysses belong to us. We must try to love them. And if only we arrange our lives according to that principle which counsels us, that we must hold to the difficult, go towards what we don't like, then that which now still seems to us most alien will become what we most trust and find most faithful. How should we be able to forget those ancient myths that are at the beginning of all peoples, the myths about dragons that at the last moment turn into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses, who are only waiting to see us beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is, in its deepest being, something helpless that wants help from us. Thank you, Rilke. Our aloneness is lonely. Our terror is afraid. Our rage is upset and our depression is sad. All of the parts of ourselves that we have formerly hated and feared are desperately in need of our loving attention. Our fear is that if we go towards these mind and body states, rather than constantly managing them, fixing them, running or hiding from them, we will be engulfed. But there are ways of becoming present with what we are experiencing that bring us freedom instead. 
I sometimes liken our resistance to being with what is uncomfortable to the image of a village that has lived under the fierce and frightening power of a mighty dragon. After having tried endless times to destroy the dragon, most of the people stay hunkered down in their homes, half alive, afraid to live their lives. There is a little boy in the village who sees clearly that either trying to destroy the dragon or hide from it wasn't bringing the people the freedom they yearned for. He decides that he is going to get to know the dragon. Sneaking out one night, for everyone in the village has told him not to go, he makes his way to the dragon's cave and finds a rock to sit upon out of fire-breathing range. When the dragon appears, rather than running away from him, the little boy says, I want to get to know you. The dragon, very unused to this response, puffs up his chest and makes a lot of noise as he breathes out fire in the boy's direction. He steps behind a rock, but still holding on to the intention to befriend the dragon. He says again, I want to get to know you. The dragon finally recognizes what the little boy is saying and begins to share all of the loneliness that came from being hated and feared. The little boy discovers that the dragon just wanted someone to listen to it. As they listen to one another, they become great friends and the dragon even takes the little boy flying. The so-called dragons within us desperately want to be seen, not hated, feared, resisted, or ignored. They want to be recognized and heard. I now know, deeply know, and trust that going towards and engaging with what I have formerly resisted does bring the healing I yearn for. But my automatic reaction when something arises that I have not yet included in the community of my being, it still comes the urge to turn away. And the faster I run, the faster it runs after me. I find, however, that my times of running are shorter now, and my willingness to sit with it, out of fire-breathing range, is getting stronger. We also have difficulty putting on Stephen's hat because we have been lost inside of our own conversation for so long that we have forgotten the safety of being present for life. There is something wonderful here in this living moment that can only be discovered when our awareness is fully engaged in the present. Becoming free. Life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. John Lennon. Having been lost in the maze of the story for so long, it is not only very difficult for us to notice that we're dragged around by our thoughts all day long, but it is also very challenging in the beginning to see what your story is doing. It's much like trying to describe the type of house you're living in if you have never been able to go outside and see it in its totality. 
In order to see how addicted we are to our stories about life, I invite you to try the following. Bring one of your fingers into the space in front of your eyes and begin to move it all around, up and down and side to side, and really follow this finger with your whole body. This finger represents the stories that pass through you all day long, and wherever they go, your attention goes. If a story of sadness shows up, you say you're sad. If your story says that life is terrifying, you live in fear. Without even a thought about thinking, you are dragged around by your conversation all day long. It has been said that we have over 60,000 thoughts a day and 90% of them are repeats from the day before. And by far, the greatest percentage of them are involved with our own individual story. Me, 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 me. Keeping us caught in a maze of struggle. Lost inside of our story, we are always trying to create the life we want. And all the while, the life we yearn for is right here, unfolding in the present moment but we don't know how to connect with the moment. And we've been gone for such a long time that we are afraid of it. So on and on we go, trying to get it all together in order to snare the peace we are yearning for. Tumbling from one idea to another all day long, we exhaust ourselves with our constant searching. Very rarely, if ever, does it penetrate our consciousness that we are not these thoughts? Thought is a tool, just like our thumb is a tool. As a man once said in one of my retreats, the liver makes bile, the kidneys make urine, and the mind makes thoughts. You would think it ridiculous if someone thought we were bile. <laughs> it is just as ridiculous to say that we are our thoughts. We are awareness. We are that which can see our thoughts rather than being thought itself. So now lift your finger again and move it all around in the space in front of you tracking it wherever it goes. Now, keep the finger moving, but look straight ahead and focus on what is directly before you. See it. Really see it. Keep the finger going and then bring your attention back to the finger. Get lost in thought again. And then keep the finger going, but lift your attention out of your finger and see what is directly in front of you. And then back, noticing the stream of thought by watching your finger. And then keeping the finger going, but notice what is directly in front of you. This is what it is like when our attention is not following thought. Thoughts think themselves, and our freedom comes 
when we realize we do not have to follow our thoughts wherever they go. Because we are focusing on something other than thoughts, we can also notice that we are the ability to see the finger moving rather than the finger itself. Thoughts come, thoughts go. As we learn to see our stories rather than identifying with them, we can access levels of freedom that were incomprehensible when we were enmeshed with thought. As we watch thought, rather than being lost in it, the first thing we see is how busy it is. It carries on a running commentary about our lives, planning and regretting and wishing and hoping, clinging, judging, rejecting, rationalizing. We can get tired just watching how busy it is. And we can see that our attention has been pulled up and out of our whole being and has become focused just in our heads. This cuts us off from an intimate and alive connection with life. For as we step back into a more spacious place and watch the conversation that moves through us all day long, it becomes easy to see that thought is mainly focused on struggle. It struggles with our bodies, our mates, our children, our co-workers, our boss, the weather, our emotions, and even struggles with itself. It is absolutely certain that if it gets rid of what it doesn't like and acquire what it does, then it will finally know peace. But it's very important to notice if the desired object is attained and we feel a moment of peace, that very quickly the fear of losing what we have gained kicks in. And there we are again on the treadmill of struggle. If our story's main addiction is to struggle, then its main flavor is fear. It's terrified of being embarrassed, hurt, abandoned, not looking cool. It is afraid of what might be, afraid of what might not be, and afraid of the consequences of it all. We are afraid for ourselves, for our family, for our earth. And our stories, just like the news media, thrive on high drama, turning everything into an emergency. It is said that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That is because mostly what we fear are phantoms in the mind. Now, however, we are ready for the next step. We don't need to be afraid of fear. Years ago, I was spending a weekend with Patricia's son, a powerful teacher of awakening, and she reminded me that the fear we all have is genuine, but 99% of it is not real when seen through the light of your awareness. In truth, fear is a paper dragon 
just a conversation in our heads. Our job is to step back from the fear of fear so that we can listen to fear rather than having it lead the way. The seemingly endless conversation in our head that also believes at its core that who we are is defective. One of its favorite pastimes is to continually reform itself. It prunes and edits, shoves down and tries to exercise what it finds unacceptable. For many years, I had a sign on my bathroom mirror that was so faded from the steam of the shower that no one could read it. But I knew what it said. The thinking mind is based upon needful, not enoughness. In other words, we need to be different because we are not enough. Subtly chants our minds. This is not only true inside of your mind, but it is the truth for every single human being there is. No matter how powerful or accomplished one becomes, this belief still lies deep in the heart of our minds that are so good at making up stories about life. All we have to do is hear interviews with people who are considered to be successful and, if they are honest, their self-doubt and fear always surface. As long as we keep on buying into this belief, the story will continue to be fueled. What would happen if you knew, really knew, that you were always enough? Another one of the story's main games is control. Cut off from the sea of intelligence, this web of concepts feels that it is in charge of life. It tries to orchestrate it all, feeling that if our lives haven't yet become perfect, it's only because we haven't yet done it right. If we do attain some level of control, it's usually accomplished by a subtle feeling that we should have done it better. If we exercise three times a week, we should be doing it five. If we commit to being kind in our lives, we're appalled at the slightest inkling of irritation. We seem to be constantly jockeying and maneuvering for control because we have lost sight of the fact that the awesome intelligence that has brought forth galaxies and wildflowers is present in our daily lives. Our story has created a split in our minds between us and this intelligence. We may accept that our hearts beat from a power greater than us, but the story says that we are responsible for the rest. Control is ultimately an illusion. Remember a time when you felt you had it all together or really understood your life? It usually came with a sense that you had finally gotten it all nailed down. But it changed, didn't it? It's much like trying to hold down a dozen rubber duckies in a tub full of water. Just when you think you have them all corralled, you take a deep sigh of relief and they all pop up out of your grasp again. The mind doesn't want to accept that life is a constantly changing show. Every thought will turn into another. Every object we desire will eventually become tattered and old. 
Every person we love will either watch us die or we will watch them die. To come out of the illusion of solidity and permanence into the constantly changing flow of the sea of life is not as scary as one might think. People who have been given a terminal diagnosis usually react with great horror and grief. Then many of them go on to rediscover life. Everything becomes fresh and clear, new and very precious. I have heard people say that a life-threatening diagnosis from their doctor was the greatest gift they were ever given. It propelled them out of their story and its illusion of permanence and connected them with the breathtaking wonder of being present for life the moment it appears out of mystery. When we are in the flow of life, rather than being lost in thought, our attention is then available for the living moment. And the power of focused attention is enormous. Have you ever noticed what it's like to stare at the back of somebody's head while on a bus? Eventually, that person will turn around. Whatever awareness focuses on becomes more alive. If a simple gaze can penetrate the normal state of unconsciousness that most people live in, think of the possibilities that come from human minds that are focused and available to life. The power is awesome. Not only does undivided attention enhance and enliven whatever it focuses on, it can also help us to access deep wisdom that is unavailable when we are lost in our struggling mind. A good example of how attention can bring us out of struggle, allowing us to become connected to the deep wisdom that is always with us, comes from an experience I had with my son Micah. One Saturday morning, running up the stairs, he enfolded me in a dancing hug. It's mine, he said. I bought it, and it's really mine. After years of saving and at least two months of searching, he had found the car of his dreams, and it had received a clean bill of health from a mechanic. He had given the previous owner two-thirds of the money and was going to complete the deal the next day when the banks opened. Close your eyes, he said. I want to take you out to see it, but I don't want you to look until I give you the signal. Down two flights of stairs and out to the driveway and onto the lawn we went, he leading, I following. When I got to just the right place, he turned around and said, Okay, now you can open your eyes. Tears of joy sprang to my eyes. It was exactly what he had dreamed of. It had come close to many times in the last few months, only to see the deal slip away. I'm off, he said. There are so many people I want to show it to. As I watched him drive away, one of the precious moments in the long, long journey of parenting flooded my being, deep contentment in my child's happiness. The next day he was up early, much earlier than usual for an 18-year-old. There were deals to complete, licenses to purchase, and stereos to be looked at. When I arrived home later that afternoon, there was a message on the answering machine. Mom, please be there. There's something wrong with the car. I checked the time. The call came in 40 minutes ago. 
When I called him and he picked up the phone, all he said was, you need to come right now. The left front wheel fell off the car and has caused a lot of damage. In shock silence, I picked him up from where he had placed the call and took him back to the car. It was like a sleek, beautiful panther that had its left front leg chewed off and it lay wounded and tilted by the side of the road. I pulled in behind it, and as I put on the hazard lights, Micah got out and sat on the curb, his head in his hands. Only one half hour ago, he had signed the bill of sale. In his 30-minute span, he had his dream in his hands, only to watch it dissolve in front of him. As we waited for the tow truck, my mind became caught in the labyrinth of struggle. It was whipping around at lightning speeds, opening into a deep sadness, only to become consumed by rage at life for seeming to be such an unfair process. And then it would fall into helplessness. Because of the cold, Micah eventually came back into the car, and we sat there silently, each one of us dealing with our grief. He was in such a deep place that words were noise and touch was an invasion. After what seemed like a very long time, actually probably only around five minutes, faintly through the cacophony of my mind, I heard the beat of the hazard lights. Come back, awareness said. Rest for a moment in this steady beat. At first, my mind resisted it. I was strongly pulled by the tidal wave of thought and emotion that were moving through me. Life is not safe. It's out to hurt you and the ones you love. I don't know what to do. What I'm doing is wrong. As these voices screamed in my head, awareness whispered gently, Come back. You're getting lost in your story. It's not necessary to identify with these ancient and familiar patterns of your mind. Over and over again, I returned to the hazard lights and to long, slow outbreaths. Slowly, my awareness became more available to the living moment. I began to see rather than react to the stories in my mind. I recognized that all the millions of moments of my life had brought me to this moment, sitting by the side of the road with two hearts breaking and the steady beat of the hazard lights. I then became very curious about what parts of my story were making themselves known to me. And as the waves moved through, rather than becoming lost in them, I named them, Oh, Rage, I see you. Oh, yes. There you are, self-judgment. Of course, sadness is here. As I went through layer upon layer of my story, I discovered despair at the core. This was not only the deep despair within me that I had hidden from my whole life, and it was not only Micah's despair at learning that life is oftentimes an uncontrollable process, but it was our despair the despair that all of us feel because of our separation and mistrust of life. I knew then that the most skillful thing I could do in this situation was to meet this despair, not to be swallowed by it, but to stand with it. 
I did this not only for Micah and myself, but for all human beings. My heart opened to this deep despair, and I was able to be present to it and allow it a voice in the community of my being. Because I was able to see rather than react to what was moving through me, from that moment on, the place out of which my words and actions came was very much different than before. Not getting lost in my inner struggle, I was again connected to the wisdom, compassion, and curiosity that allowed for actions that were skillful and healing. I became present to the process in a way that was unavailable to me when I was lost in thought. The very atmosphere in the car changed, and over the next few hours and even onto the next few weeks, this experience brought both of us much more than it had taken away. So know you can discover the ability to relate to your thoughts rather than from them. This is not a quick fix, but it is the pathway to the freedom that is always here, right outside of your struggling mind. And I invite you to give yourself a few minutes every day where you ground your attention in your breath and then just notice when thought again grabs your attention and just say thinking or story and then bring your attention back to your breath. This process will slowly and surely strengthen the muscle of your attention so even when you are meeting the most challenging parts of life, you will remember that you don't have to get lost in the stories in your mind. And thus, you can be present for whatever life is offering. I invite you to give yourself this gift on a daily basis, not only for yourself, but for our world. For as more and more human beings learn how to use thought rather than being lost in thought, our world will be healed. Namaste. Calling all authors. Have you been considering an audiobook? Well, look no further. Come take advantage of DreamVision 7 Radio Network's unique in-house audiobook production, which includes benefits and bonuses from our radio station. Let our knowledgeable staff guide you to create the audiobook you've always dreamed of without breaking the bank. Check out our full one-stop service from A to Z, including the ACX process. Schedule a free consultation by calling 508-226-1723. That's 508-226-1723. Or go to dreamvision7radio.com. Thank you for listening to this edition of What's in Your Way is the Way with your host, Mary O'Malley. You can access Mary's offerings on her websites, maryomalley.com and whatsintheway.com. Join Mary next time to experience the peace and joy that is always with you on Evolutionary Voices for the Quantum Age. Heard Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe. 
relax and enjoy. Let life flow.